Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started tonight, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you're in fellowship, ready to study the word and focus. And it's good to see everybody out tonight that you weathered this terrible tropical storm and managed to swim through all the flooded streets and avoid all of the horrible winds that we didn't get this time. So, next time. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, we're thankful that we can be here tonight, that you've provided a place for us to meet, a place where we can gather together to study your word. Father, we're thankful for the freedom we have in this nation. We continue to remember to pray for those who are uh, fighting in Iraq, fighting in Afghanistan, those who are out on the front lines of the uh, war against terrorism and those who are in all of the different support positions. We pray that you would continue to give wisdom and skill to them and wisdom and skill to our leaders as they think through and sift through all of the intelligence and all the data that comes in related to those who would seek to do us harm. Father, we continue to pray that you would protect this nation as we Continue to be a place, despite the apostasy that's here, despite the hostility developing toward Christianity, we continue to be a place that sends out missionaries, a nation where there is the free proclamation of the gospel, and a nation that still is in support of Israel and their desire to survive against their enemies who seek to destroy them. Father, we pray for us as we study your word tonight that as we look at these things, we'll be challenged in our own spiritual life, recognizing that you work in history and that ultimately everything that occurs in history is under your control and under your guidance, and that that gives us peace, it gives us tranquility, even as we face the uncertainties of an election year and the uncertainties of the uh, of our enemies, we know that that you are in control, and therefore we have a sure and certain hope. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in 1 Kings chapter 11. We've gotten down to about verse 9. And the last couple of lessons I focused on the topic of figures of speech related to the opening phrase in verse 9. Just to bring you back to where we have been so far in 1 Corinthians 11, up to this point, the first 10 chapters, I mean not 1 Corinthians, 1 Kings, up to this point in 1 Kings, we have seen the establishment of Solomon on the throne, and we have seen the rise and development of Solomon, his wisdom, his skill, we've seen his building uh, programs, and we have seen the remarkable, remarkable way in which God blessed Solomon. He blessed God. He blessed Solomon in terms of his, the wisdom that he gave him, and he blessed him above and beyond in terms of the, his prosperity and his material wealth, the expansion of the kingdom, and his conquests of the neighboring uh, neighboring nations as he's expanding the. Uh, control of the territory, the land that God had promised Abraham. And that is foundational for understanding what is unfolding in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. As we pointed out in the introduction, these two books should be read as one. And 1 and 2 Kings depict what happens to Israel as a result of their disobedience to God in light of the Mosaic Covenant. So the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and the Davidic Covenant form the backdrop for understanding the flow of historical events in the books of 1 and 2 Kings. 1 Kings 1 through 10 God 
promises Solomon that if Solomon, strong condition there, that if Solomon continues to be faithful to God, continues to be to walk in the ways of his father David, that God will uh, bless him and that Solomon's descendants will not depart from the throne of David. And as we've seen in 1 Kings 11, uh, Solomon fails. And so because that was stated as an unconditional, I mean, as a conditional promise of God, not unconditional like the Davidic covenant to David, but as a conditional promise to Solomon, then when Solomon fails, when he leads the nation into idolatry and promotes this horrible, abhorrent evil in Israel, then God is going to discipline him. And so beginning in verse 9, we see the episodes related to that discipline. Now, the first eight verses describe uh, Solomon's sins, that he had many wives. Now, this is not, as I pointed out, this is not a sexual sin. This was a sin related to two things, related, number one, to as a, as a broad category to Solomon's failure to trust God for security in the land. Because what he is doing in marrying all of these foreign wives is establishing various alliances with these foreign powers and houses, the, the rulers, the dynasties in, in Syria, in uh, Moab, in Edom, in Egypt, uh, Phoenicia, Tyre, and all these areas in order to establish Israel and to protect them from these enemies rather than trusting God. And so he's involved in failure not only to trust God but failure to obey him. And I pointed out that, first of all, Solomon fails the uh, prosperity test and the people test because he lets the prosperity that he's that he has realized that God has given him cause him to get his attention off of God and onto the material wealth, the possessions, the uh, building projects that he has, all of these different things distract him from that single-minded devotion to God. Uh, He fails the people test in that his foreign wives, as we learn in uh, in verse 2, these foreign wives turn his heart away from these other gods. I mean, from from God to the other gods. And Solomon's foreign wives influence him to idolatry and to disobey God. And he violates three different laws for marriage, as I pointed out. He violates the divine establishment principle for monogamy laid down in in, uh, Genesis chapter 2. He violates the Mosaic law, which prohibited foreign marriages and prohibited the Jews from entering into covenants, and a marriage is essentially a covenant, from entering into covenants with the uh, pagans in the land and those who surrounded, uh, those Gentile nations that surrounded Israel. This is seen, as I pointed out, in Exodus 23, 31 to 33, Exodus 34, 12 to 16, and Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 through 4. And then third, he violates the law prohibiting polygamy for Israel's kings in Deuteronomy 17.17. 17. So he violates the Mosaic law he, in terms of his marriages, and then the wives influence him into the direction of idolatry, and so he brings in these foreign gods, and they are listed here as he brings in the worship of the uh, of the Ashtoreth in verse 5, and Milcom, Milcom, and uh, Chemosh, and Moloch are just variations of the same god. This is the god that's worshipped by bringing infants to him and sacrificing these infants uh, to the gods. And so there is a penalty in the Mosaic law, death penalty, for anyone who worships Moloch. And so uh, Solomon, just like his father David, is guilty of a capital crime and should be executed according to the Mosaic law. But God, in his grace, does not call for that. God uh, 
allowed David to live and he allows Solomon to live because of his grace. Now, God can do that because God's the one who establishes the principle of capital punishment. But God has established that capital, capital punishment for uh, the the um, stability of the human race and to protect us from criminality. There are there are proper and appropriate times for grace and for mercy in order to commute the sentences, the death penalty in certain cases. But when you're in a situation like we are in the United States, where death penalty is the exception rather than the rule, uh, the exercise of grace and mercy is overdone, and so. Uh, that needs to be remembered. But God commutes the sentence. He doesn't uh, desire the life of Solomon. He's going to be gracious to Solomon because of his promise, uh, because of God's promise that he had made to David in the Davidic covenant. So we have as our backdrop the Abrahamic covenant where God promised to Israel land, seed, and blessing. The land promise is foundational to understand the the whole movement in uh, the books of Kings, in the book of Kings. Because as we get to the end of 2 Kings, we will see that both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom have been removed from the land in divine discipline according to the five stages of discipline which God outlined in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 14 and following. And what we see going on from the beginning of Solomon's failure here in chapter 11 through the end of Second Kings is the outworking of those uh, four stages of dis- or five stages of discipline in the history of Israel, culminating in their in their removal of the land. So that land promise to Abraham is foundational for understanding this. Because the, when God gave the conditional Mosaic law to Israel, he makes the issue their obedience. So that if they're, dis, if they're obedient, they will stay in the land that God promised Abraham, and they will be blessed by God and experience all of God's blessings while they are in the land. But if they continue to be disobedient and apostate, and if they reject God and turn to idols then God is going to discipline them, ultimately taking them out of the land. And this is important for us to understand that the Mosaic law is a contract between God and Israel. No other nations, there may be similarities or parallels in some of these cycles of discipline with other nations, but the problem is that this is a unique uh, covenant because it's grounded on this promise of a specific piece of real estate to Israel, and so that all of the punishments that God instigates in each of the cycles uh, and stages of discipline relate to some sort of problem in the land, economic problems, health problems, disease, uh, military defeat, and eventually military conquest and removal from the land, so that the land figures in as the as the thread that runs through all of these stages of discipline, so that while there may be some parallels and some similarities and uh, cycles and trends that we see in other nations, you, you don't find anything like this with any other. No other nation can go into the fifth cycle of discipline. It's impossible. Now, one other nation in all of history can go into the fifth cycle of discipline. Why? Because no other nation in history has promised a piece of real estate that they're on. That's the unique feature, is only Israel has a God-given right to a certain piece of real estate. The French don't have any God-given right to France. The British don't have a God-given right to, to uh, Britain. The Germans don't have a God-given right to Germany. The Russians don't have a God-given right to Russia. The Arabs don't have a God-given right to anything. Only, I'll just wake up, just... Only the Jews have a God-given right to that piece of land. That's why there's this connection there uh, in terms of the blessing and the cursings in Leviticus chapter 26. They all ultimately tie to whether or not Israel is obedient, and only as an obedient people 
can they stay in the land and enjoy its blessings? But as, if they're disobedient and idolatrous, then God is going to uh, remove them in discipline. But the promise that we have studied in the past that is embedded in, in Leviticus chapter 26 and its parallels in Deuteronomy is that God will eventually bring them back as a redeemed people. So we see the beginning stages Actually, it's not even the first stage of divine discipline. It's sort of the uh, precursor, the setup uh, for the first stage of divine discipline in in this chapter and chapter 11. So Solomon fails the people test. He allows these foreign wives to influence him. And the New Testament counterpart for this, which we have to remember, is stated in 1 Corinthians 15.33, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. It doesn't matter who you are and how comfortable you may be in what you believe. If we allow ourselves to be closely associated and affiliated with people whose ideas and thoughts and opinions can influence us, then we need to distance ourselves from those people. That doesn't mean you can't have a a relationship at some distance with them, and I don't mean physically, I mean just in terms of their influence uh, on you. But I've seen so many situations, whether you're talking about teenagers and peer pressure, or you're talking about uh, young people, uh, young 20-somethings or 30-somethings in terms of who they date or who they marry. And I've seen people who were uh, uh, fairly squared away doctrinally, and they marry somebody who isn't positive, and just to try to have some sort of uh, sense of peace and stability or unity within the within the marriage, they will often compromise uh, on doctrine and on the word just to get along. So we always have to guard ourselves against the people around us who can, who influence us. So Solomon allows these foreign wives to influence him. We've seen that. Third, we saw that Solomon violated the promise God had made to him in reference to the covenant with his father David. This is seen in both 1 Kings 3.14, the first time God appeared to Solomon, and in 1 Kings 9.4-10, through 10, the second time God appeared to Solomon. Both times God promised Solomon that if he was obedient to God and followed in the footsteps of his father David, then God would bless him. But David, I mean Solomon failed to do this, and that's what expressed in verse 4, that when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. And as I went through this the last time, I pointed out that these gods and goddesses that are mentioned from verses 5, uh, 5 and 6 and 7 are the national deities of these surrounding countries. You have uh, Ashtoreth, who is one of the primary deities both in Egypt and in the area of modern Lebanon, Tyre and Sidon. Uh, and you have Milcom with the Ammonites. You have uh, Chemosh with the Moabites, and this is the problem. And so as we look at a map, we see the Tyre and Sidon are up here in the area of Phoenicia, and that's the uh, northeastern, or excuse me, northwestern uh, tip of Israel. You have the same problem today. That's modern Lebanon. Off to the northeast, you have Syria and Damascus, which continues to be a problem and they're continually trying to get Israel to give up the Golan Heights, which is the high ground located on the east side of the uh, Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Canareth, as it's labeled in this particular map. And Israel would be foolish to do that in the uh, Yom Kippur War in 73. They gained all this territory coming down here on the east side of the Jordan and the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which uh, enables them to uh, at least have a buffer zone there with Syria. Prior to 73, the Syrians sat up on those heights, and they had an elevation of about, I guess, five to 700 feet or maybe more over 
uh, the Sea of Galilee, and they could just, and they did, they just randomly lobbed artillery shells on a daily basis into the Jewish cities on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, like Tiberias and some of the other cities. And when you go there and you look across the lake and you see those uh, high bluffs and hills and that high ridge line that's the Golan Heights, you realize how vulnerable Israel is. And if and that was bad back in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s. And now with more modern weaponry, it would be suicide for Israel to give up the Golan Heights. And yet, in the blindness and the arrogance that modern man has, thinking that somehow we can achieve peace for land, uh, man is constantly trying to buy security. It's the same thing that Solomon was doing. He was trying to buy security through these uh, marriages, these alliances with the uh, ruling powers in these uh, various nations surrounding him. And the same kind of thing continues to go on, uh, go on today. Now, this is compounded by the fact that not only on this up northern, northeast border do you have Syria and Lebanon, and you have huge numbers of Hezbollah today amassed up there they ha- in, the, in the war that broke out in Le- with Lebanon two years ago. Uh, Hezbollah had about 10,000 rockets, and they were basically low-range rockets. But in the last two years, they have uh, the Iranians have shipped in 20 to 30,000 more rockets to Hezbollah, and they have range all the way down to Tel Aviv and Jerusalem from up on the northern border. Now, remember, Hezbollah is just a proxy army for Iran. Now, when you get down into the southwest, you have this area in the ancient world was Philistia, and there you have Gaza. That's the same Gaza Strip you read about in the papers today, and the Gaza Strip is is Palestinian-controlled territory. Hamas is in control down there. Hamas has also been uh, rearmed by the Iranians so that you have uh, Iran setting things up with the Pincher movement so that if Israel decides to attack Iran and to wipe out their, uh, wipe out their nuclear facilities, then uh, Iran is going to respond by sending Hezbollah in from the north and Hamas in from the south, and we're going to have a bloody, we may have a very bloody winter and spring. And there are numerous analysts who believe that if uh, Obama is elected in November, then Israel will have to attack before the first of the year, or especially before uh, Obama gets uh, would get inaugurated uh, into the presidency because there's no certainty that the U.S. would continue to back them. And so they will want to uh, make a decision prior to the end of President Bush's term. So we sit in an extremely dangerous time right now in terms of uh, what can happen in the Middle East. And uh, so we just need to be in prayer and watch and be knowledgeable of what's going on. The other interesting thing about this is that uh, Iran is controlled by Shiites, and the Sunnis hate the Shiites, and the Shia hate the Sunni. And the Sunni nations, including Saudi Arabia, have given tacit approval to Israel under the table to attack Iran. Now, they'll never admit that overtly, but they've given approval because the Sunni nations do not want a nuclear Shia power at all. So that just gives you a little insight. The same things that are going on today were going on in the ancient world, and you have the same basic problem, which is the problem that we find uh, Jeremiah addressing some years later in Jeremiah 17. So hold your place in 1 Kings 11, and Jeremiah is going to confront the southern kingdom of Judah in Jeremiah 17, with a passage that focuses on the same issue that Solomon uh, failed with. In Jeremiah chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, Jeremiah outlines the sin of Judah. Judah is Solomon's tribe, and they are committing the same sin that Solomon was committing. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. That means that it is deeply engraved and their and their sin pattern is they are deeply ensconced in their sin pattern. 
The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with the point of a diamond it is engraved. Now, it's interesting here how he is using these figures of speech in order to uh, emphasize, highlight, and dramatize the fixed negative volition of Judah. And I pointed out last time in our study on figures of speech that figures of speech are not to be dismissed as somehow meaningless. And I gave you a couple of quotes from different scholars in their response to certain things and saying, oh, well, that's just a mere figure of speech. And then I gave you a quote from Bullinger's introduction where he deals with that, that a figure of speech doesn't minimize what's saying. It dramatizes it uh, so that it is saying something in a much more uh, emphatic manner to get our attention. And that's exactly what we see here. Now, the other thing I pointed out last time, just to... Uh, remind you a little bit, was I went to uh, Song of Solomon uh, chapter 4, and um, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to turn there and read that to you just to remind you, because this is uh, one of those chapters that where you learn the importance of understanding uh, figures of speech. And that begins in chapter 4, verse 1, where... Uh, Solomon, who is the male, and the Shunammite woman is his love. And he says, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. So he's trying to describe her beauty. And he begins by saying, You have dove's eyes behind your veil, and your hair is like a flock of goats. And you can't understand this literally. You have to understand it in terms of how these metaphors were used in the ancient world. And I pointed out that I had this drawing from some years ago in a periodical that came out while I was in seminary called The Wittenberg Door, and I tracked it down, and some artist uh, drew a picture of this beautiful woman as if these figures were not taken literally, if you took them, uh, if you, well, if you took the figures literally rather than figuratively. And so you see that her hair is like a flock of goats and her temples like a pomegranate, all rough, and, uh, and her uh, eyes are like doves, and her teeth are like, you, like um, uh, a flock of shorn sheep coming up from the washing, each one bearing twins, none is barren. Her neck is like, a, like the Tower of David, and so you see all of the stones uh, it's built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Uh, her breasts are like two fawns down at the bottom of the picture. So this just gives you an idea of why it's important to study and understand figures of speech. And so I thought you would enjoy that. I managed to recover that from uh, the Internet and actually was able to order a back copy of that issue for our viewing pleasure. Okay, back to Jeremiah 17. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. This is a metaphor. It's not written with an actual iron pen, but something written with an iron pen indicates something that has permanence, something that is, uh, would make a, iron would make a deep impression. And so this is a deep-seated sin. Uh, with the point of a diamond. A diamond is the hardest known substance. And so, it again, it's in, uh, with the point of a diamond, it's engraved, indicating its permanence and, it's, and that this is they are locked down in their sin. And then he goes on to say, on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of your altars, that is, in their thinking and in their uh, practice. While their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills. That is a depiction of idolatry. The altars and wooden images in the high hills, the high places where they worshipped uh, the Ashtoreth and the other fertility gods and goddesses. Verse 3, O my mountain in the field, I will give as plunder your wealth all your treasures. So Israel is referred to as a mountain. This is an allusion to Mount Zion. On my mountain in the field, I will give, give as plunder your wealth, all your treasures, and your high places of sin within all your borders. He's uh, prophesying conquest and defeat. 
Verse 4, And you even yourself shall let go of your heritage which I gave you, and I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know, for you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. So obviously this is metaphorical. God is not permanently disciplining Israel. There's the promise that he will bring them back. It is a uh, metaphor for his, uh, the intensity of his righteous judgment. And then he states the indictment in verse 5. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. When we think that we get security from human beings, from human effort, from human methodology, then we are in effect being idolatrous. Security in life, stability in life, can only come from a relationship with God and the application of the Word of God in our life. There is no security anywhere else. Everything changes. It's such a truism. We laugh about it all the time. Up in New England, we used to joke about the fact that that was probably the most profane, uh, the most extreme profanity or profane word you could use in New England was the word change. But change is inevitable. And there will always be changes. There will be changes of administration. There will be changes in economic cycles. There will be changes in job cycles. And we can't put our security in our education. We can't put our security in uh, our bank accounts, our investment strategy. We can't put our security in anything human. That doesn't mean that you don't plan, that you don't get an education, you don't do those things. It means that you don't trust in them as the ultimate source of your security because anything and everything can change and our entire lives can be turned upside down by decisions of people who are conducting their business some 1,500 to 2,000 miles away in Washington, D.C., and we have nothing to say about the decisions that they are making, and they can impact us and our descendants from, for dozens of generations. And that's exactly what happens with Solomon. Solomon is making these decisions as the national leader and yet they are going to affect every Jew in the street in both the in, in all the twelve tribes, and is going to impact the history of Israel up to the very present time. He set them on a course of idolatry. As a result of that, he was setting them on a course of divine discipline. And he's responsible as a leader. You have this corporate thing that we read about in the scriptures that the leadership, the decisions of the leadership of a nation can be as, uh, can, can be as significant in the future of the nation as the decisions of the people. We saw this on Sunday morning when we were going through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I mean, not baptism of the Holy Spirit, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, when the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees reject Jesus as being empowered by the Holy Spirit and claimed that he got his power to cast out demons from, from uh, Satan, from Beelzebul. And as a result of that, Jesus pronounces the judgment that will come upon Israel because of their rejection of him and accusing him of being empowered uh, by, uh, by Satan and by demons. And so the decisions of the leadership uh, can have devastating consequences, not just on us, but on subsequent generations. And so uh, this is what happens. You have men trusting in man. So the Lord says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. That's Solomon's sin. He is trusting in these alliances in violation of the Mosaic law, in violation of the direct command of God. He is relying upon human factors to give military security and to, to Israel and to continue their prosperity. So he is rejecting the God who has, is the real source of the blessing, and he is turning to these other gods, and this is a direct violation of the uh, first commandment in the Mosaic Law. This is why that is defined when we get into verse 6. 
uh, 1 Kings 11, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Again and again and again, we're going to see that phrase in First and Second Kings, and it always identifies idolatry. It always identifies idolatry because this is the foundation, foundational failure in relation to the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, we read, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, it is Yahweh who sets the slaves in Egypt free. But what we have in Exodus is an attempt to rewrite history in terms of idolatry. The first attempt, when Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, and he's gone for 40 days, and Aaron is down with the people, and the people become restless, and they want him to make them a god. So he makes a golden calf, and he says, this calf is the god who brought you out of Egypt. So it is an act of treason. Idolatry for Israel is an act of treason and disloyalty to the God who, number one, delivered them from slavery, and number two, who is the, the head of state. So this is the foundational evil. And so God says in Exodus 24, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Again, an anthropopathism indicating that God demands exclusive uh, obedience and exclusive worship. God isn't going to share himself with any other gods. It, it does not mean that God is some petty little self-absorbed uh, little G God, as Oprah Winfrey would have it, but that he demands exclusive loyalty and is not going to allow them to uh, follow after other gods or to be tolerant of other religious views. So he says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands. So the judgment, the judge... The judgment of God, the justice of God, never violates and never operates apart from his grace. His grace is always there and always precedes his judgment. And that's emphasized in Exodus 20, verse 6. So what Solomon is doing is violating that principle of divine dependence. He's doing exactly what Jeremiah states in verse 5 of Jeremiah 17. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart departs from the Lord, which is exactly what Solomon had done. And the result of that is described in verse 6, For he shall be like a shrub in the desert. He shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. In other words, you dry up on the inside. There's no happiness. There's no stability. There's no peace. You're dominated by mental attitude sins, and life becomes a miserable experience. Uh, ultimately because there is no source of stability. And this is the same kind of thing that the psalmist refers to when he talks about how the Israelites in the wilderness called upon God to, to feed them when they were griping and complaining about the lack of food and says that God answered their prayer but sent leanness to their soul. And this is what we have demonstrated here is this leanness of soul that comes when people reject God. And the contrast is given in verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh and whose hope is the Lord. And then his blessing and his life is described in verse 8 in contrast to verse 6. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, that is when adversity comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought. In other words, when pressures come, when you go through economic reverses, when you go through uh, recessions or depressions, when you go through tough times in life, for whatever the reason, that the believer whose mind is focused on God and trusting in him has stability, has peace, has happiness, because his, our peace and happiness is dependent on the promise of God and the stability of God and not on our circumstances. 
And so we have a sure and certain hope, and that hope is based on the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit and what they have provided for us, and we can never lose that. So Solomon violates that. Let's turn back to 1 Kings 11. That is exactly what Solomon is doing, and in order to guarantee peace and prosperity, he is choosing a route. He's not the first, and he won't be the last, and we see it so evidently today. He is choosing a path where he is looking to security from other people and other nations. Today it goes by the word internationalism. In the in Genesis chapter 11, it went by the name of the Tower of Babel. It is man's attempt to bring peace and stability into his experience by defying God and uniting against him. The Tower of Babel was at its root a religious activity. They were raising the tower in opposition to God. They were staying there united on the plain of Shinar at at Babel for the purpose of defying God's command to Noah to scatter out throughout the earth. They stayed in one place. They're building this tower, this ziggurat, as a way to reach God. The idea is that, okay, God, you got mad at us and tried to destroy us with a flood, so now we're going to build our own mountain so that you send a flood again, we'll be able to survive. This is the foolishness of the human heart that that rejects God and denies who he actually is. And so you have this first endeavor of mankind, the human race, uniting against God to provide security and stability for himself and to deny the control of God. As a result, God established the fifth divine institution at that point, which is national distinctions, uh, tribal distinctions at that stage. But God did that through scattering uh, by, by confusing the languages. And up to that point, there was only one language. Uh, immediately on that day, must have been quite humorous. People would be talking to each other, and then suddenly in the middle of a sentence, they couldn't understand each other. And there were uh, hundreds of different languages that began that day. And over time, these languages developed into other languages, but people would have to go around and talk to other people to find somebody who could understand them. And as a result of that, they would uh, band together, and you would have uh, maybe 100 or 200 people in one group who understood each other. They couldn't understand anybody else, so they went off on their own. Then there would be another 100 or 200 people who could understand each other, and they would go off on their own. And it forced the human race to divide, to spread out, to scatter over the earth, and to establish those uh, those national distinctions between these different people groups. And they are to maintain these national distinctions, and these nations will maintain national distinctions even into the new heavens and the new earth if you read through uh, Revelation chapter 21 and 22. So there's never a time when God authorizes a return to a one-world internationalism. And every attempt to unify the nations to solve all of our problems uh, apart from God, every time that has happened, there is something uh, that God does in human history in order to stop that. And, you know, the, the various attempts at empire building down through the ancient world with the Babylonians and the Persians and later the Greeks and the Romans all the way up into uh, modern times, various attempts uh, in the Middle Ages with the Mongols and uh, others with the uh, Arabs and Islam all the way up to modern times, Napoleon, uh, Hitler, many others have attempted to do this. And in the West... Western nations have uh, come under the arrogance that was first promoted by uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was one of the worst presidents we ever had. Not the worst, but one of the worst presidents we ever had. And he's the one who first came up with the idea of the League of Nations to solve the problems of uh, war after the First World War. 
course, the United States Congress had a little more sense. It would not join the League of Nations uh, back then. But that idea, once it was planted internationally, continued to grow and evolved into the modern uh, United Nations. And a lot of people think, oh, isn't this wonderful? Nations need a place to cooperate. It's a place where everyone can come together. But you have to understand that the foundation of the United Nations is religious. If you go to the U.N. building, I used to have pictures of this back in the days before there were digital cameras, and so I don't anymore, and I wish I could get a good picture of this. But if you go to the U.N. building in New York and you go to the main entrance, emblazoned over the entrance is a quote from Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. And Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, is a statement related to the millennial kingdom and what will happen when the Messiah comes, that they will beat their uh, swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and man will make war no more. And by putting that verse over the entry to the U.N., the U.N. is claim, making a religious claim that they can bring in world peace. They can do what the Bible says only the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, can do, and he will only do it when he returns at the second coming. And man, all through history, tries to solve his problems through international alliances and agreements and manipulations and all of these different things, and the result it never, ever works out. And this is what happened with Solomon. And what's interesting to see the irony of this particular passage is that Solomon builds these worship centers. I like that. You catch the irony of the tone there. That's what all the charismatic and health and wealth prosperity people call their churches. Now, they're not churches. They're worship centers. So Solomon is building his uh, worship centers for all of these idols from all these surrounding nations, and God is going to raise up people in these surrounding nations that are going to create havoc for him in the last years of his reign. So we came to verse 9, and verse 9 says that the Lord became angry with Solomon. Again, a metaphor an anthropopathism based on anthropomorphism indicating the justice of God. The Lord uh, is executing his justice. It's not random. It's not emotional. He's not out of control. He is car- he's going to carry out, and what we will see in First and Second Kings, he's going to carry out the cycles of discipline just as he laid out in Leviticus chapter 26. And so he is... He is, uh, his wrath, his judicial wrath is going to be expressed towards Solomon because Solomon's heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. Now what's interesting here, I want you to pay attention to this as we go through chapter 11, is that God has appeared to Solomon twice. God spoke face to face with Solomon here. He outlined his plan to Solomon, how he would bless him if Solomon were obedient. The Lord did not mediate his directions to Solomon through a prophet. From the time of the death of David until this chapter, we don't hear of a prophet coming to address Solomon. It is God who directly addresses Solomon. But it's not until this chapter when we have Ahijah show up later on in the chapter that we have another prophet uh, who, who, now there were prophets, but they don't address Solomon. And we have to remember that the pattern in the Old Testament is always that a, a prophet anoints the king and the prophet is the divine prosecutor, if you will, God's representative who enforces the law. He is God's enforcer who comes and announces judgment because of disobedience. But with Solomon, it is God who does it face-to-face, not through an intermediary, uh, not through another prophet. So the Lord uh, becomes angry with Solomon, 
and is going to judge him because, verse 10, he had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. God had specifically revealed this to Solomon, and he just uh, rejects it. Therefore, verse 11, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David. This is a tremendous picture, capture this, of of how Solomon is being blessed by association with his father David. Even though he has sinned in such an egregious way, and the nation is going to suffer tremendously for it, for the sake of his father David, God is not going to uh, discipline Solomon in this way. It will not come uh, during uh, during his life. And then he says that, however, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son. So there is grace in this judgment, but it's because of David. Because of the Davidic covenant, God had promised that the seed would come, the Messiah would come through David's line. So God is going to leave the, the southern kingdom in existence with the tribe of Judah as the dominant one. And if you read through this passage, you say, well, give one tribe to your son. You say, well, what about the tribe of Benjamin? The tribe of Benjamin had such a small territory that by this time, the Benjamites, who actually had Jerusalem, had just been assimilated into Judah so that they they were living with the tribe of Judah, which was the more dominant tribe, and they basically had were losing their individual identity in terms of their individual uh, location and and property. So God promises one one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So this shows again that God has chosen Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is a unique city on the earth. So what we see here is that Solomon is in a unique position because he is David's son and David's heir. He has personal promises from God with regard to his future if he will be faithful to God. He is, as the king of Israel, the leader of God's covenant people, and thus he is responsible for the covenant faithfulness of the people. Because he goes astray, he leads the people astray, and so this is why God is going to so harshly judge him. We see that Solomon's failure is both a personal failure and a national failure. As the representative of the nation, his sin has national implications. So it affects not only him, but also everyone else in the nation. And a principle there that we need to remember is that our sin, don't deceive yourself, our sins do not just affect us. Oftentimes we try to deceive ourselves into thinking that, well, my sin and my sin nature is just my sin and my sin nature, leave me alone. But our sins have consequences many times, and many times they are unforeseen and unintended, but they affect those that are around us. So God's uh, judgment is that he's going to rip the kingdom apart. He uses an extremely uh, picturesque word, kara, which is a word that is often used to uh, depict the grief expression of Jews. When they're grieving deeply, they would rip their robes, they would rip their garments. And this is the same word that is used in that instance, so it's a word that is loaded with uh, uh, emotional connotation here. And when people hear this word, they would have a word association uh, with grief. It's used of tearing garments and other things, but this is a very picturesque demonstration that God is going to rip and tear the nation apart and set uh, 12 tribes, uh, 10 tribes against two. The result of this is that God begins to act in a profound way in human history. And what's important to uh, recognize here, starting in verse 14, is that the raising up of these external enemies, and there are going to be two external enemies and one internal enemy. The two external enemies are Hadad 
the Edomite, and the episode with him is discussed down to ver- from 14 to 22. And then Reason, uh, the king of Zobah, and this has to do with the area up around Damascus and Syria. And so you have these two external enemies that are going to be raised up by God and one internal uh, contender who is going to be uh, Jeroboam who will take over, eventually take over the rulership of the northern kingdom. And But they God allows them to come to power because of Solomon's sin. It's not because Solomon didn't have the right political theory. It's not because Solomon didn't have the right economic theory. It's not because Solomon didn't have the right education. See, that's what you often hear today with modern political solutions is we just need to train people. We just need to educate people more. And again and again and again, whenever there's any kind of a of a problem, a social problem, what the government wants to do is throw money at it in terms of education. And the presupposition under that is that the problem isn't sin, because in our modern arrogance, men are good. They are not basically evil. They're basically good. And so they don't need correction. They need education. And so you wonder, how did we get in a lot of the messes we're in? It's because the... Uh, culture in which we've lived for the last uh, hundred plus years coming out of the late uh, 19th century, coming out of the influence of Darwinism and naturalism that dominated the education system in the late 19th century and early 20th century, our culture became uh, just grounded in this uh, optimism that man is basically good, everything is going to improve and get better and better, and man can do it through government and through education, just pure uh, John Deweyism. And so uh, what we have is a world, and this inf- affects the church too, where people think that the, the real causative element in history has to do with some kind of education or lack of it, or that the real uh, causative thing is economic. This is the Marxist theory of, of economics and of history, or it has to do with some other internal factor. And what we see in the Old Testament is not a rejection that these are factors, but they're not the big factor. The big causative factor that moves history is spirituality and a relationship to God. You can't come into the laboratory of history and show a direct cause effect between Solomon's idolatry and the rise of these two foreign enemies in Damascus and in Edom and the rise of Jeroboam. You don't see that. You can't put that in a test tube and demonstrate it empirically. But God says this is the reality because Solomon got involved in idolatry and led the nation into idolatry. I am going to raise up these these foreign enemies and I'm going to allow them to have power in order to use them to discipline Israel. So the ultimate factor of causation in human history is always spirituality. It always has to do with with believers uh, in the church age, it has to do with church age believers in the age of Israel. It had to do with the Israelites and how they, whether they were obedient or disobedient to the Mosaic Covenant. And when we get into uh, the church age, you have both factors because God still blesses those who bless Israel and curses those who curse Israel. So that's one dynamic. Another dynamic has to do with uh, church-age believers and their positive volition, whether or not they're sending out missionaries, whether or not they're supportive of Israel and uh, several other spiritual factors. And then as we near the end of the church age, you get another dynamic that enters in, and I think that has been a part of history for the last at least 200 years, and that is God is setting the stage for what will take place when the rapture occurs on into the tribulation period. Now, we don't know how close we are to that. We could be 50 minutes away from the rapture, or we could be 50 years or 
50 centuries from the rapture. I don't think it's that far because Israel is back in the land and God said he's only going to bring them back from a worldwide dispersion twice and this is the second time. So there's, he's not going to do it again. And this is the final, final return and we studied that. So this sets up the stage for these external, two external enemies and one internal enemy, Jeroboam, and that is the, the, this next section from verse 14 down through verse 43 is going to set a pattern and set the principle that, that the rest of First Kings and all of Second Kings is an outworking of. So we need to pay attention to that. We'll come back and look at that next Tuesday night. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight and to take a look at your word and to realize that you are the God of history and the God who controls history and that the only way we can have personal security and stability is by putting our faith, our hope, our trust in you, not trusting in man, not trusting in politics, not trusting in people, but trusting exclusively in you, and you are the only one capable of taking care of us. Father, we pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.